Hello and welcome to Math Felix on Air. People who create, people who make a difference. It's coming to you from WordSpace Studios in San Francisco, California. The show is on hiatus for the summer, so I'm digging into the archives for some great episodes from the recent past that I hope are just as relevant and thought-provoking and entertaining now as they were when they were originally broadcast. On today's show, which aired in July of last year and is also included in my Words and Images podcast, award-winning artist and writer Paul Madonna talks about the joys and lingering challenges of a trip to France, how his all-over coffee series and novel Close Enough for the Angels deconstructed then rethought the relationship between words and images, and his series in the Knob Hill Gazette, Quotable City. Thanks for listening, and if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers. A number one bestseller in Amazon's travel humor and literary travel categories, and winner of four Solas Awards, including gold for humor. Publishers Weekly called Porcelain Travels offbeat and funny, and CBS travel editor Peter Greenberg called it a very funny book. You can also check out Porcelain Travel's companion podcast of the same name, which features recorded and live readings of excerpts from the book. Porcelain Travels is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com and other online retailers. For many years at my favorite cafes around San Francisco's Mission District, I used to see this guy who was always drawing. I always kept a respectful distance, but I was curious who he was and what he was up to. At some point, I honestly don't remember how or when, I discovered who he was and that he had a book. And because I loved his style and the fact that the subject matter, at least the drawings in particular, was about San Francisco, uh, I ended up buying his all-over coffee as a thank you when I went to stay with some French friends in Rome. Now, that was many years ago, and while I haven't seen him in a cafe for a long time, I see his work all over. Just the other day, I went to a Starbucks in West Portal here in San Francisco, where I'd never been, and I looked up, and there was one of his murals. And sometimes I eat at Takalicious, which is in my neighborhood, and he's got a whole wall there. So that's happened a few times in my wanderings around the city. So when I came back from Central Asia and was pondering my next round of guests, I decided to reach out again and see if he might be available. And he was, and now he is, and his name, of course, is Paul Madonna. But to give him a more formal intro, Paul Madonna is an award-winning artist and writer. He is the creator of two series, All Over Coffee and Small Potatoes, and the author of four books, All Over Coffee, Every Coffee, Everything is Its Own Reward, On to the Next Dream, and Close Enough for the Angels. Paul's drawings and stories have appeared internationally in numerous publications, such as The Believer and Ziziva, as well as in galleries and museums, including the Oakland Museum of California and the San Francisco Contemporary Jewish Museum. Paul is also just back from a solo exhibition at the William Blake Association in La Bardoc, France. His work has been made into murals, as I just said, as well as printed onto chocolates, dresses, and hats. Paul holds a BFA from Carnegie Mellon University and was the first ever art intern at Mad Magazine. He is a former editor for the Rumpus.net, has taught drawing at the University of San Francisco, and frequently lectures on creative practice, even when not asked. As luck would have it, he's about to be asked. Welcome, mm -hmm. Paul. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for uh, accepting the invite. So how was France? It was terrible. 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 So yeah. they, they make you do this thing where they... Um, you open a bottle of wine at lunch. Yeah. And then uh, they give you things like foie gras 
uh, like which is you know this terribly rich horrible thing that you have to eat yeah uh and then maybe four or five courses over the, like three hours uh that's what they make you do in the afternoons uh-huh uh, we won't even talk about the evenings yeah yeah okay so you suffered through it i suffered like. through it yeah yep. Uh, is there more of you to love as a result? It sounds <laughs> there like there is actually yeah, a okay. little bit more. Yeah, a little bit I'm, more. I'm trying to get a little bit less of me to love. A little, back little now, less. Of yeah, okay. Now that I'm here. Well, you know what? <laughs> we can never have too much love. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to jump into something really quickly before we get into your books, which we're going to focus on. Great. Um, but I just I read the afterward to Oliver Coffee, and there were a million things that jumped out. And like us, we should we could have probably six episodes here, ten episodes, but. Just to start with something in particular, and then we're going to go on, like I said, to the books. But quote, you said, and this may have changed because you wrote this book a while ago, but still, my fundamental principle of choosing a life of creativity is to do what comes naturally. At the time, you were kind of struggling with what direction to go. You hadn't started um, All About Coffee yet. I felt that if I was avoiding my own work, I must have strayed from that. So my fundamental principle of choosing a life of creativity is to do what comes naturally. Can you elaborate on that a little? Well, first, I'm... I'm uh proud that my articulation from 12 years ago i'm like oh good i, I did <laughs> yeah, all right with those yeah, sentences yeah it worked for yeah, me you know um uh, yeah i think that that is absolutely still true now because i mean in a, a fundamental principle is as simple as that right it's it's one that underlines everything that i identified much earlier you know that book was that book came out in 2007 so i wrote that afterward in in 06 but really i discovered that principle uh my early on sophomore year of college uh just from having experiences in the studio and what i was procrastinating you know just sort of give a quick overview which was that i was a painting major i entered college as an oil painter and um and I discovered that I wasn't painting and this was I was in an advanced painting class and it was we would meet for crits every two weeks and I was a night before critique two weeks I hadn't been doing anything on painting and so I'm up of course at like midnight going flipping through my sketchbook how can I find something in here that I can turn into two weeks of painting which of right. course is a lie you know you're right. never going to fool anybody but really what I discovered was that my sketchbook was full. It was full of, I was writing short plays, I was writing a lot of scenes, I was doing tons of drawings, and it was rich, and, and it sort of hit me that it wasn't that I was not working, it was that I wasn't painting. Mm -hmm. Now, I think I'm very lucky in that I could have discovered that I was doing scientific equations or something where I would have had to dramatically change the path I was on, but really I just had to do, make some fine adjustments within the course, I, I, you know, course of life that I was already on. Yep. And it was that discovery of not what do you think you should be doing, but what are you actually doing kind of when you're not paying attention. Yeah. And from then on, it became the thing that I'm always checking in with myself because we all do it, right? We all, we all make these things up and that's how anybody who's ambitious and has dreams and has goals, you have to project yourself into the future. But then there's the, the sort of back and forth of keeping yourself disciplined and on track while also checking in and saying, is this true to where I need to be going? And, and it's a difficult line. Right, right. And, and that's why it struck me because I think you could easily just gloss over this line um, but I just know so many people, myself included, where creative people, whether whatever the medium that they're working in, where we, like you said, we sort of identified something that we feel like we're quote unquote supposed to be doing or mm -hmm. we should be doing. And maybe our soul, our spirit, our creative, whatever is telling us, no, actually, this is this is what feels right. And, and having the courage and the being conscious enough to see that and then trust that, I think, also. Um, when you've kind of convinced yourself that you're supposed to be doing something else, in your case, two weeks of, of painting that you neglected. So, 
Uh, so thanks for that. Anyway, that's why that kind of uh, struck me, because I think a lot of us go through that when we're uh, creating. Okay, so All Over Coffee. Yes. What, uh, for those who aren't already familiar with it, what is All Over Coffee? You know, in order to answer that, I have to say, to this day, the I think the biggest biggest success of that series is that it's still almost impossible to define. Yes. Like, it's very, you can't set out to make something that is indescribable. And it that, that sounds like it's being, I don't know, kind of a high-minded lofty or whatever. But everything gets put into boxes. Yep. You know, it's just sort of, the, it's like gravity. It falls down and it, and it rolls into a box. And um, and who knows, maybe undescribable is a very small box with a small opening, and so very few things fall in it. But it, it's enigmatic. And I think it's because what I was doing was I was combining mediums and contexts in in ways that they hadn't been combined before. You know, I, you know putting short stories with drawings in a newspaper is certainly not an unusual thing when you just say it in that sort of outline, because that's what it was. It was drawings of cityscapes with these pieces of flash fiction, or in the beginning it was a lot of uh, fictional overheard conversations. Uh, it's, it's interesting, as a tangent, when I uh, moved away from the conversation style of writing and went a bit more into prose, I got all these emails telling me, like, you know, we really love those overheard conversations. You know, why, why are you making stuff up now? <laughs> you know, it's, you uh -huh. know, it was much better before. And I'm like, I actually made all that other stuff up too. And what's interesting was when you uh, present it in that conversational form, there is a, a, an expectation on the reader's part that they are taking something real. And I hadn't e even understood how deeply the audience was responding until I stopped doing it. You know, so it's interesting that feedback. But also, you know, that series did not belong in a newspaper. Really, if you look at on the face of it, what was it doing in there? And, and I was aware of that and I loved it. And, you know, when Phil Bronstein brought me in, he knew it too. And he, you know, we talked about it as being a cultural thing. This was a San Francisco culture, mm -hmm. which is news, which is about how are we living? Who are we as a people? Not just the, the stories of, 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 you know, whatever news stories. Uh, so I think that it's, it's the combination of all of those things. If I would have just done Oliver Coffee only, let's say, and present it in a gallery, it would have been received very different because differently because it's context. People were coming in having expectations of what they see in a gallery, and so they come from that point of view and then assess the work based on that. So people go to the newspaper and have an expectation of what they're going to see. So that combination of story and image in that context, I think, was is almost more important. Yeah. However, you know, it was then collected into. I did two books, um, and that went much further than than the series. So there's been a lot of people who discovered the books and didn't know that it had been in a newspaper until they, you know, read the afterword or whatever. The and, yeah. and the work still holds up. So I don't think it's it would I don't think it's only successful because it was in a newspaper. But when we talk about describing it, I kinda have to talk around it rather than giving you some solid words. Okay. Well again, just for the people who weren't already familiar with it, it did <laughs> actually it did actually run uh, not it wasn't a short run in the newspaper. No. It was a twelve year run from February two thousand four to December two thousand fifteen for a total of seven hundred twenty six strips. And then, as you just referenced, it was uh, collected into three books published by City Lights uh, Press, All Over Coffee, Everything It's Its Own Reward, and On to the Next Dream. Um, I'm going to read you a quote to help you define a little bit, again, for our readers, what Great. it might be. Wait, a little where bit. Is, where's the quote come from? So the quote comes from your afterward. Oh, okay. Which so I read like five times. I'm quoting you again. Right. I'm going to quote you right, a we'll lot. We'll see how I this am, sentence holds yeah, up. I, yeah. yeah, we'll see how this sentence holds up. I am going <laughs> to quote 
several other people, but I'm going to quote you probably most of all. Uh, quote, all over coffee began as a deconstruction, then reassignment of how words and images function in the newspaper comic. And this is going to be a recurring theme in your work, including the novel. So it's not just comics that you end up pursuing this exploration of the relationship, deconstruction, reassignment of words and images. Uh, but, but what does that mean to someone... Well, just what, what does that mean to you, I guess, in the creation of Oliver Coffee? Well, it be, it's about the, the conscious manipulation of the, the medium. Um, uh, taking it apart and putting it back together. You know, we talk about creative process all the time. And w w what do those words mean? You know, it's so abstract. Uh, oh, does it mean just like going in and I'm just like, oh, do I throw paint all around or whatever? Um, and mine is, my process is incredibly analytical. It's about organization. Uh, and... I'm actually a very mathematical person. I like math. Um, I'm, I'm drawn to systems. I'm drawn to order. And so when I, when I look at something, I begin to take it apart to understand how it's made. And there's sort of a reverse engineering. And I think the creative part is going, not just how do I put that back together the way that I understood it, but what happens if I turn this part? For example, when I talked about the reassignment, uh, I, I'll give you a quick overview of I, I, I grew up loving newspaper comics. I mean, it was a thing that like every household I walked into, where's the newspaper? I'm reading the newspaper strips. And um, and I read the ones that I didn't even like. My uncle used to make fun of me because I always complain about them. And he's like, why do you keep reading them? And I remember, you know, you have these moments that make you kind of self-aware. And and I, I didn't know how to answer it. But I began to watch what happened to the newspaper strips and they just got smaller and smaller. And, um, and you know, you have to write seven days a week. They, and it, what I realized is it was really about the rhythm of the story. Now the, the pictures you, you was identified the aesthetic, but there was no longer any action. Like once Calvin and Hobbes left, there's no action, nothing, nobody's doing anything. There's often just these stagnant characters. And what I realized is that, the aesthetic, oh, we just identify, is that the same characters drawn the same way that I understand? Good. What's it really telling me today? Yep. And I yep. thought, well, what happens if I change that aesthetic then? We actually don't need the characters anymore. Let's give some beautiful pictures. Let's make them really rich. Let's make them like paintings or like really lush drawings. I want them. I literally set out to make the most beautiful drawings I could. Mm -hmm. That was my goal. So I chose materials based on what was very emotionally evocative for me. Yeah. Uh, what was beautiful to me. Yeah. So that was the re uh, association. The, the, uh, so saying if it's aesthetic we're identifying, then I can, I can change that aesthetic. It doesn't have to be a cartoon aesthetic. So do you see what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. And if the stories then are really what we're paying attention to, then the characters can exist in there, which is why they were, it was dialogue in the beginning. Yep. And so it was really about rhythm, which is what I think, you know, for me, what writing is about. It's about having a good ear. And so, you know, I just started switching things up, the relationships between the story and the pictures. And so it became a, kind of like a, just a math problem a little bit. Mm -hmm. So again, for people who haven't seen... Um, because this is sort of inferred in what you're saying, but if I'm a listener... Right, and I'm so familiar with it, right? Right, right. Yeah. so I'm going to fill in a blank here, which is you didn't draw people in the strip. Exactly, thank you, thank you. Um, yes, I removed all the people, and some of that was in the very beginning, I mean, it was intentional, but I also took out all the cars, and the cars was actually incidental because I was more interested in capturing what the city looked like. I wanted to know how the building met the sidewalk. I wanted to know how the tree went into the ground where the sidewalk was lifting. And if I had to get up and look around where a car was parked to see that, 
because that's I didn't want to just draw the tree and then the car because the cars were they're everywhere, you know. Um, yes. And then, but I, you know, and then as I intellectualize it, I like the idea of I used to call myself a slow camera. I'm like a camera that you have to put on like for four hours to take the picture and people walk through cars go by, but they turn into blurs uh-huh. because you know, if the, if the shutter's open for four hours, something that's there for 30 seconds doesn't register onto the film. Right. And so if I'm sitting there drawing for two hours, those things come and go. And so wh- what it gave was this really sort of beautiful empty space that was uh, kind of timeless. But, th- but I was, the thing about people taking people out was very conscious was because I was thinking of Edward Gorey who um, really loved the theater. And, and I, I think of his drawings as being like sets on a stage all the time. You know, he kind of has this uh, low horizon line. It kind of feels like a platform. And, and, um, and I thought, oh, it's basically like what I'm doing is I'm creating the stage. So this is the other thing about the newspaper comics. They don't draw backgrounds or they just kind of barely fill them in. Sure. So I was like, oh, they're always drawing foregrounds and, and characters. I'm taking the characters out. So let's reverse it change the aesthetic, draw what there isn't normally there. And I was, and then I thought of Gory and I thought of situ and I was like, Oh, I'm going to show you where these scenes take place because it was never like, Oh, this person on this corner is having this conversation. No, it was far more abstract than that. You said the characters voices would float, leaving the reader something to dream on. You also said drawing was integral of course, but the visual information couldn't steal from the reader's imagination. Exactly. Which I love that. Yeah. I love ah, that. These are all holding up. Thank See, you. You're, you're, you're pulling you've done out so good well. ones. I'll, I'll, yeah. be, I'll feel yeah. really bad if I, if I give you a quote <laughs> and you're like, oh shit, did I actually No, say no, that? I'll just yeah. be like, all right, well, yeah, yeah we'll right, edit yeah. that out. It's 10 years next. later. It's all right. Once in a while. Um, <laughs> but the other thing with regards to taking out the cars, because this is, this is another one. I think you're going to be three for three or four for four. Uh, where did this quote go? Hold on. Uh, the pieces are designed to be lonely. Mm-hmm. Taking out all the cars, taking out all the people was a way of quieting the scene. Offering stillness is not a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um, you agree with yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That, <laughs> Sorry, that's I could that, that was too easy. Oh, Sorry. hi. It's, yeah, a, it's yeah. like I'm doing a, you know, a filming where I'm playing two roles. I'm yeah. having a conversation. Yeah, I'm like, exactly. oh, you're so yeah. smart. It's my fault. I'm putting you in that situation. So. Um, no, I, I, I should say I still agree. Yeah. Uh, maybe with that that concept. Like, I, it's it's still important to me. Yeah. Maybe it's a better way of saying okay. it. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's the easy argument of like, oh, we live in a fast paced life and everybody's connected. But here's the funny thing about that concept. I think every generation has felt that way. Every generation has been on the cusp of the most amount of technology, the most amount of connectivity. And so they always feel like they're moving so fast. And if you think about that, if every generation has always felt it, then in essence, we're not actually experiencing anything new. Mm hmm. We think we are because the tools look different. It's a variation on the same thing. Exactly. So in essence, we still have to get back to the things that are human. And, um, you know, for me, I have to, I spend a lot of time by myself and, uh, I am a social person. I, I like and care and need people. Um, but in order for me to have the discipline and practice that I want, it's kind of, I have to push things out. I have to close things off. And, um, I think it's more about what I shut out rather than what I let in. And that that's what I mean by the stillness is uh, giving pause, taking a moment. And um, and that was sort of what I was always chasing. Like for me, one of my my solid definitions of success is having freedom of time, because that means that if I need to pause and break, I will. And I think that when there's quiet and we have to say, uh, what am I doing? What am I going to do? 
something changes in the brain and, and we become aware that we have control over making choices and that n we're not on just a routine. Yep. I always say for me, the biggest challenge to creating whatever I'm going to create, it's not, it's not inspiration. Everyone mm -hmm. says, Oh, where do you get your ideas? Is that, right. that hard? Do you, are you, it's the, it's finding the time and space mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. Thank um, you. I'm, I'm glad you didn't ask me where do your ideas come from? I mean, I'm asked it all the time and, and I always have to take a breath because I know that's a very genuine and, um, it's, it's a good question. I understand it, but it, it, it kind of feels like, Oh God, if you don't understand that, then we kind of have to rewind. We, we've got some serious classwork to do yeah. because, <laughs> because for me, it's, it's about being open to just seeing the world and letting things flow through flow, and developing exactly. a, a yeah. habit of thinking. And, um, and you're right. Like inspiration, inspiration is what like hits me it's like closing your eyes and throwing a dart and opening up and be like, Oh, there happened to be a bullseye. How often does that happen? You know? Right. 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 Uh, you go to work, <laughs> you go to work and you process. Right. All right. So let's look at two other quick, actually they're not necessarily, well, they are, they are going to kind of be quick. They don't, they wouldn't have to be quick if we had more time, but this, this concept of going at things backwards and opposites, because again, this, this reappears. And you talked about uh, with regards to how you actually do the drawings that you typically Write first, then you draw. Yes. But sometimes you go at it backwards. And right. that when you do go at it backwards, that it takes longer, but that it can be liberating and refreshing because, kind of in line with what we've just been talking about, it forces you to stay conscious with the process. Exactly. So, um, so can you elaborate a little bit on that and how shaking up our processes that we kind of already have can be really good for the process itself? Right. Well, uh, I think it's as simple as all routine uh, deadens the mind to some extent. And a lot of times that is actually good because in order to get things done, especially re repetitive tasks, we should turn off the mind uh, and simply get them done. Yep. We, we should not be asking every moment of everything, why am I doing this? What am I doing? Like, it's just, that's a kind of a form of insanity. Uh, at the same time, it depends on what your work is. Now, the next part of that, I think, is letting yourself be open to doing it differently by accident. And, and that's the sort of, uh, that's the like staying conscious of, of like, oh, I, I accidentally did that thing. And well, hmm, what is that? Maybe I can run with that a little bit. Uh, so, you know, in terms of drawing, actually my drawing process has changed over the years because it's built upon itself. And now I'm doing large drawings, which I can't go out into the field and just do an immediate drawing. Uh, and and just this year, I have returned to using graphite and pencils, which I when I was like when I was about 12 or 13, I was doing uh, hyper realism graphite drawings. Um, and, and from there is when I went into abstract oil painting. So I really haven't used the like drawing or pencil drawing medium uh, for, I don't know, what, 30 years because all over coffee was all it was ink. All, all ink. And right. the idea with that was about the immediacy being out in the world, drawing straight ink, no preparatory marks. It was that like being really awake and aware and not being afraid of making any, any bad marks. I and get asked that them. all the time. Work with them just People like you were just like, saying. Are you afraid of making right. a mistake? And the answer I have to that is, do you go to the theater and worry if the performers are going to screw up their lines? No, you trust them as professionals. If you think about drawing as a performance, not, a, not a, with an audience, but as a being in the moment and having rhythm and flow and just doing it and being present with it. 
But you know, that, that reminds me of something uh, that's interesting that I hadn't actually planned on asking. But for you, it often has been a performance. Because like I said in my intro, I saw you in cafes all the time. And then in, in a lot of the reading that I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about the first time that you were in a cafe in Coal Valley or The Hate or something. And it was the first time the guy, the owner of the cafe looks over your shoulder and says, that's really good. And you were shocked. Mm-hmm. And then you, you commented, oh, I, and then I, had to, I ended up having to get used to this because this happened a lot. How did that inform... Did, how do you, did you really just get used to it? Is it a nuisance? Is it a joy? Is it both? Um, you're not it's, doing it's it so much that way now, it sounds like, but before. Well, I mean, I still draw out, like I still, I was, you know, I was in Europe uh, for the show, but I was also drawing for the whole next body of work that I'm making. But I was doing, I was doing all pencil. I was doing like sketches. I was doing really different type of, of drawings in preparation to come back here and make drawings from those. Uh, but to go back to your question about the cafes, uh, you know, I love working out in public. It's funny. I never thought of that as a performance. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I'm so solitary. What I like well, is... Well, and that pain- wasn't your motivation. It wasn't my motivation. Um, I like, you know, I, I think for the studio, as a, it's a workshop. And while I like to be alone, I don't want to be alone all day long. Right. Um, I like being surrounded by people. I love the din. I love the energy. And I, but I like that public versus private thing. You know, let's look at the laptop culture. You know, why do people take their laptops out? It's that same thing. Like, they just don't want to sit alone in a room. Right. And, and I, I think it's just like that cafe culture, which, you know, in America, it's a very different culture. It's boxed in more. And we have it in, in San Francisco more than most places in the States. But, you know, other European countries, like I've just been in places where going and sitting in a cafe and like that's just you meet people and you're hanging out at night. Like, it's just those sort of public spaces are are more readily available and i think that um i'm inclined to that so i love writing out in public because i get to just sit there and do my thing but i'm surrounded by people still yeah okay one more quick question because we've got to move on to close enough for angels because i for the angels because i have too many questions too many things i want to ask you but this is interesting and it actually it's kind of a nice there there's a lot of overlap here so maybe um i don't need to qualify it i just need to ask so this would be a strip. So now we're talking about all about coffee. This would be a strip with no characters, as we just discussed. Random pieces of text where the associations had to be deciphered. Okay, and then so that's about all about coffee. With, Over coffee. Sorry, damn it. So no, I'm mixing up about. All... Well, I'm looking at about close enough for the angels, yeah, don't worry and I'm about talking it. about. Okay, thanks for your forgiveness. You go back and forth though. That's okay. what's funny. All right. Uh, prepositions have always been tough for me. <laughs> about close enough for the angels, you say. It's not, this is from Shelf Awareness, uh, your interview with them. It's not uh, obvious why we're reading this chapter and seeing this image, and we're going to talk about the book in a second. But um, adding that figuring out why a particular image is tied to a particular part of the text is something of a small puzzle for the reader to figure out. So both with Mm -hmm. All Over Coffee and About Close Enough for the Angels, and presumably in your other work, you're making the reader, you're making the the observer work. Yes. Tell me about that. Let's start with... The, the the two fundamental mediums that I have been committed to for 20, almost 30 years at this point, uh, consciously committed to and have been doing, I think, all my life is uh, story and image. Now, how those what those turn into, whether a story is one sentence, one word, whether it's 100,000 words in a plot uh, or what type of image, you know, all of those. I mean, I'm talking about like these really sort of core just simple concepts that and then how they relate changes too. now all over coffee was about creating a gap between the text and the image creating a negative space in between mm-hmm. that people had to fill in close enough for the angels because it was long form 
I felt like I couldn't do that successfully because it's a, it's basically time-based. A novel is time-based. You know, it takes you time to read it. And, and some people can read a book in two or three days and some do it over the course of months. And so it occupies some of your life. And, um, and at a certain point, you just want to know that it has a relationship. And at what point, if it doesn't, does the, the author tell you that, no, it's okay that it doesn't and you have to trust me that it doesn't? Because there's a great deal of trust in storytelling. And if, and, and if the author betrays that trust in any way to show that they're not doing a good job, we lose. Three. Think about it this way. I think of it as you go into a cave mm-hmm. and, you, and you trust your guide. Even if halfway through your guide wants to make a little joke and it's just like, oh my God, wait, which way are we going? And it's, ah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Even after that, you're like, I don't really like you. Right. Like, don't pull my now leg you've like shown that. Me now you're I capable am of that. terrified. Yeah. I'm terrified and you made me feel terrified. And that's uncool. Now we can make, we can allow the, the reader viewer to feel lost. They can feel lost, but they still have to trust the guide. Yeah. So that said, um, I took a different relationship between image and text in, in the book and in, in, in the angels. Okay. Let in, me just say for again, um, because I didn't do a very good segue there that close enough for the angels is a novel is a novel. It's an illustrated right. novel. It's an illustrated novel. So, so, just so I'm going to go off on a, on a bit of a tangent about that. So here's in, in the same way that all over coffee was a, a reorganization of the newspaper comic close enough for the angels is a reorganization of the illustrated novel, which I believe has fallen out of uh, contemporary, uh, you know, our, our, our reading. Or, right. Yeah. And, and it's because, I believe that I, the relationship between the story and the image that was set up a hundred years ago is no longer applicable. You said it's redundant. It's redundant. So uh, basically, uh, you know, illustrated books came about because there was a really successful book. And in order to capitalize on that, a publisher began uh, commissioning drawings. And so, and you have to figure we were, this is in an era when people didn't engage with imagery so often. They didn't have like televised versions. There's a big novelty effect. Exactly. And so you got to see it realized. And as we got, as we went through time and and printing became more readily accessible. And so people would just make illustrated books. And I think that we engage with imagery so much that it, I believe it steals from our imagination Mm -hmm. because we all have a relationship with a story. It's one of the reasons why it's difficult to see a film. I mean, one, the story is always condensed, but two, it's like, it didn't really feel that way. That's not who I saw that character as. You mean if you've read the book? If you've read the book, because you have a relationship, it's actually a personal experience for you. And there was a great deal of creativity. You envisioned it. And so you held that and that becomes your relationship with the story. And so for me, I need, I wanted to make sure I didn't do any of that. So I wanted no redundancy. Mm -hmm. If I were to, if I was talking and if I was talking about a scene, a place, I wouldn't describe that place. I would show it to you. But really, the, and the crux of the relationship, uh, and I'm not giving anything away because I think it's important to know this about the book, is that the drawings are made by the author. Mm-hmm. And the story is why the author made these. Because it's a first person. Wait, wait. The author being the character, the, the character. protagonist. The, the yeah, protagonist when you say the author, you don't mean you, the author. Correct. You mean the protagonist. The, the, the character's name is Emmett Hopper. Emmett, right. And he has made these drawings. And the story... Is how is why, why he's made the drawings, why he's made them. Yeah, and so it starts to become clear. Like at first, they feel disparate. There is that gap, but my job as the author was to actually fill that gap. Then, because it was long form. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the story itself? 
I mean, yeah. So uh, or not so much. You don't have to. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's funny. Because <laughs> there was hesitation uh, there, so you don't have to. Only because I'm just like, oh wait, you know, I'm terrible at the elevator pitch of okay. this part. I mean, I I know how to describe it in those two sentences of the relationship. I could read the forward reviews quote if it's easier for oh, you. Oh yeah, sure. And then I'll, and then I'll <laughs> told in three alternating expertly interwoven sequences. The book traces Emmett's first travels in Thailand, his early life in marriage, and his later life as an artist. Mysteries abound. Some are ultimately revealed. Others left tantalizingly unresolved. Hey. So there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Emmett Hopper is this um, this sort of character that it's it's interesting because many people have asked me if if he's a veiled uh, autobiography. Oh my god, they always do that. And that was actually a real challenge of writing uh, uh, an artist. And here's the thing: I knew that by doing this new form, I said, "Oh, I'm I'm trying to do a new version of how an illustrated novel works." And there's a concept of of uh, you know. If, if you're going to break a rule, do it as simply as possible. Don't overcomplicate it because people come in with an expectation. And if you defy that expectation, it can't be complicated. They have to understand it. They're going to cut you a little bit of slack, but a little not... bit, but don't make it too much too difficult for them. And, and so for me, I was like, well, what's the simplest way? Oh, the authors create these images, which gives me the freedom to release the images from that illustrative role. See what mm-hmm, I'm getting at? Mm-hmm, yeah, and that yeah. was my goal. Yeah. And so in some ways, I built the entire concept of the novel around the relationship that, that I wanted to create between these two things. Right. And it built this character and built a scenario. And, uh, and so that was always the thing I would return to. Is it serving this? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's good to have that sort of uh, true north to yep. always, always fixate on. Um, so, but the, the type of character that Emmett is is completely different from me. Mm-hmm. And so it was really fun because here's the thing. I think if you write too much about from your own, there is the, the propensity to then start to moralize and to try to, you have to get it right and you have to philosophize. No, I was writing about a character who behaved differently than me. And, um, and he's a, he's sort of like Forrest Gump, but not the, not the, the Cervantes more just like everything good that ever happened to him happened by accident. And he figured out that he could never... It was a two-hit wonder twice, I think. Exa- yeah, what you so said. It was yeah. a one-hit wonder two wonder times wonder over. Two, yeah, yeah. And it was because uh, like his brother uh, had, had a terrible illness, and, and he found himself writing about his brother, and it turned into a best-selling book. And then he decided, oh, I must be an author now. And so he tried writing books, but he was terrible at it because he wasn't actually an author. It was the story or the timing or both. It was the story. Both. It was the right. thing that moved through him. And that's what he realized was that basically he needed to live and let experience move through him however it could. It, it, it did. And in some ways, we can hear this echoed back to my philosophy of sort of finding your way. But I, I so, yes, I'm still writing from a philosophy that I believe in. But the way that I chose to express it through this character was a very different type of of uh, outward personality than my own. Yep. And that's what was joyful is figuring out how does this person behave in the world and how do these things affect him and both positively and negatively. And that's how I could write plot. And how do they affect him both positively and negatively? And more specifically, I think the underlying prefer- or pre- uh, premise was, and then how do they uh, uh, compel him to create art. Exactly. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the art in this book. So we understand who he is and why. And so when things happen to him and we see him react, we understand who he is. And then we understand, oh, this is why he made the drawings. Yeah. So there becomes, sudden, not suddenly, but at the end, it should, hopefully, if I did my job right, fill, forms one entire whole. So we begin with these disparate parts and then we come together with a whole. Right. 
Uh, so just to clarify, though, so it's not, it's an illustrated novel. Correct. It's not a graphic novel. Thank you for clarifying that because here's exactly, because I'm, I'm taking a nod from a traditional form that I'm trying to build upon and turn. A graphic novel, I mean, as much, I love graphic novels, but it comes out of comic books. You know, graphic novel, uh, the term, I can't tell you exactly when it entered our, our, you know, our lexicon, our lexicon. but, um, you know, I, if I remember my own experience, uh, you know, you have the, the, the 60s and 70s and definitely in San Francisco and then the 80s in New York where you had comic revolutions where they came out of the pulp um, superhero and, and uh, fantasy and horror and it went into counterculture. And so that started to, to fall into the art category more uh, because they were autobiographical, they were explicit. And then that turned into uh, the, you know, you had those other more popular genres then got dark and adult in the 80s and 90s. And that's when we saw the films starting to come about. I mean, the first Batman films in like uh, the late 80s or uh, early 90s. And then now we're seeing all of that. I mean, the, you know, movie industry is dominated You can't by even it. keep up. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. all of that came out of what was happening in the 80s and 90s in popular comics. So all of this, and then we, we got this term graphic novels because they wanted, well, I don't know who they is in this situation, but um, there was a desire for the medium to no longer be like what the 1950s kids' brains were being perverted by, which had to have the comics code. There was this whole thing that, that like, like Mad Magazine, for example, had been a comic book. Mm-hmm. But because of its content, it had to go to a magazine format in order to continue doing those things because it, there were... It, it, like there a, legal, a legal code? Yeah, yeah. Or, oh, wow. yeah, like congressional like had... Like they restricted because it was it was corrupting the minds of of youngsters. Interesting. So, so um, you know, and then the the push has been for comics to have its literary place, and and now we have you know we have some amazing people. I mean, in Bay Area, we have like Dan Klaus, just as an example. There's many more, but you know, who who've really who now show in museums, and whose books are on the shelf as just books, but they're graphic novels because they come out of the comic. Genre. So if you think Oliver Coffee for me came out of newspaper cartoons, which is its own form, close enough for the angels came out of illustrated novels. So if we we have to look at the roots of where these things come from to understand how they twist and turn. Yep. Two more questions about uh, this book because then I want to talk about Quotable City, your new series. Ah, yes. uh-huh. uh, but two things I'm I'm curious about quickly is uh, so most of your work. I mean, I know in everything is its own reward. You did other cities. Yes, but uh, the novel ta- largely takes place in Thailand and other parts of Asia, uh, I China, think, and, China, and, and to- uh, China and Japan as well. Right. So I'm just wondering because your all about coffee was so San Francisco in a lot of ways. Like I said, the, the text could be anywhere. Well, sometimes maybe. Well, sometimes you could argue culturally could it? That's, that's true. That's, that's yeah, okay. Right? Good question. Good good point. Um, okay, so let's just say so that was very San Francisco. Right. To oversimplify, it was. Yeah. Uh, this book. Why, why, why South? Why Asia? Well, okay. So here's and, the thing. And when was I that challenging to make that shift or not? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'll try to answer it both yeah. in one. So yeah. let's rewind to I'm selling my first collection of Oliver coffee, and I I would literally have these conversations with publishers. Um, hey, everybody here loves your work. I'm actually looking at something we've cut out from the newspaper that's been hanging in the office. We all love it. We're not going to publish your book because <laughs> because uh, I kept being told that it was a regional. And at the time, publishers Mm -hmm. did not want to be regional. You know, these things go through fashion. Sometimes they want to be regional, sometimes they don't. And and I knew that it wasn't because I was getting emails from around the world. I was selling drawings around the world. You know, I was making a living selling my drawings alone from the series. 
and I, I was like, and I told them this and while they could in, intellectually say, okay, maybe you're doing that, but we know our, and no. And uh, city lights was like, no, I, no, we think it's, it, it'll sell. Yeah. It'll sell. No problem. Yeah. And, um, and it did, it really started, it, it sold all over the world. And, uh, and so my goal, I just started traveling a lot more mm-hmm. and I wanted to put, I wanted to open it up. I was like, you know, I have an audience around the world. All over coffee didn't have to be San Francisco specific, but because it was based here, it was still seen as a San Francisco book. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say it bothered me. It was just that I felt like it was overlooked that I, there was so much travel in there. Um, but I had first gone to Asia in the, the late nineties and really fallen in love with it. Uh, Southeast Asia particularly. And, and I'd always wanted to go back and make something. So it had been, you know, 20 years and I'd wanted to go back or maybe not quite that long, uh, 10 years. And I wanted to go back and, uh, and I thought this is a good way to really differentiate because I'm also breaking form. I'm breaking out of that like newspaper comic redefinition. I'm now tackling a different genre, a different medium, really. Yep. I mean, I'm still doing words and pictures, but they're, they're different. Uh, they have a different set of rules. And so I thought, well, what better way to set it apart than to just make this all set in Asia? I mean, a lot of the story takes place in San Francisco, but the drawings that Emmett makes mm. is about how he ended up having like basically running away to Asia yep. and why, why did he get there and why did he make all of these? And so it, you know, it was, it, I thought it was great to be able to write this story that was based in a place that I knew and sort of ground it to in not just San Francisco culture, but to American an American audience, you know, keep it in the States and then, and then allow these drawings to say, well, why are we looking at these places that are actually not even where the story is yeah. and for yeah. that to come together? Yeah. And you asked if I, it was challenging. Um, of course, it's challenging to go to a new place and draw, but there's uh, that's part of the excitement. That's part of the performance. You want too. it to be challenging. I have to exactly. You want it, it keeps to be me awake, and I have to look different. Excuse me, look at things differently. I was gonna say you look the same, but yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, although I was sweating a great deal because it was I know insanely it's hot. hot. It's hot. Like I, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I I had to look at things differently, and and also I did a lot of drawings that didn't get used. There's uh, I think there's about like 101 drawings in that book. And I started over 170, close to 180 drawings. And that's a lot. And a lot of the early ones didn't get used because as I was figuring out the story, I was even figuring out what's the point of view. Mm-hmm. Because once I began to understand him and why he was making these, I actually started making different drawings. Okay, sure. And so that kind of gave me, it was like I would step into the character and say, well, where do I need to stand? What am I really looking at? And so my, my compositional elements, even my, and my subject matter changed. All right. Speaking of change, we're going yeah. to transition to Quotable City. Although I do right. want to say, as before we transition, that you're working on a sequel. Yes, I am. I'm very yeah. excited about it. Yeah, and it takes place in Europe. So that's part of, you know, I was in France for the show, but I did a lot of other traveling. Some research. Uh, exactly. And so in, a lot Institute. of drawing. Um, so, yeah, the second book, it all takes place uh, basically it, predominantly in Italy. Okay. That's where the second book takes okay. place. Are you Italian? Uh, I am. Or, Madonna. Yeah. At least part partially Italian. Yeah, Southern yeah. Italian, yeah. Uh... Quotable city. No, actually, the reason I hesitated, uh, I was going to ask you a question. I forgot the question. Now I remember <laughs> the question. There might be a third one in that series. Are you still planning to think you have three books oh, in that in the series? Emmett? Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, the at a certain point early on when I was writing it, I uh, I took, I realized that the plot was something different and I took most of the book and was like, no, that's a different book, uh-huh. but it doesn't come next. It's not the second one. There's something else that I was thinking about sort of uh, what lineage, lineage I need to take the reader on. Uh, and you know, if you think about it, I'm a series person. I love 
making many things within something. This just happens to be a lot larger. A like larger, each yeah. installment happens to be years rather of work rather than, you know, a few weeks of work. Like for example, with quotable city. Exactly. So this is a monthly. There we go. You know, okay. You know, Oliver coffee when it started was four days a week, uh, for a year and a half. Then I did, uh, three days a week for six months. And then I did 10 years of weekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I took a break. I didn't do a regular series for a handful of years. And now I signed on to a monthly. So why are you back in that format? Um, really, I was offered uh, the Knob Hill Gazette, uh, gave me an opportunity and said, hey, do you want to create something for us? And what was really wonderful was that the, it showed me my relationship with creating a series, how much that has evolved. Because, you know, when I created All Over Coffee, I made it as I had this concept. I made it and then I went out and I sold it. And then I sort of had to fight for it. It's like... It's, it's a legitimacy. Oh, mm-hmm. it got in the newspaper because Phil was willing to think differently and the creative director Nan was willing and Matt, the, the art director, they, those three people were willing to think differently. And so, and then, but I had to sort of, you know, nobody, like people didn't, not nobody, lots of people loved it. Lots of people didn't understand it. I was always saying, like explaining it. Right. So think about the order of events. It's like a math equation. I made it, then I sold it and I had to explain it. Here, I got an opportunity. I thought, What's my audience? Who, who is my audience? What is my platform? What is my frequency? What do I want to make in this situation? It was like rather than writing the show and then finding a stage in which to perform it on, I was given a stage, offered a stage, and now I thought, well, what show do I want to put on on that stage? Right. And I love how the order of that math equation changed in the process of my thinking because it naturally elicits different results. Okay. Because what the are... intention is different. Yep. So... In some ways, I'm, I'm kind of doing what my early critics always wanted me to do with All Over Coffee because I'm really focusing on the city, just beautiful shots of the city, almost sort of postcardy shots, which I really stayed away from with All Over Coffee. I hated drawing iconic. See, my joke was if I saw people, a bunch of people taking a picture of something, I'd turn around and draw what was behind them. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I wanted the, the beauty in the everyday. Here, I'm really sort of celebrating... The, the what we all would go to naturally for beauty, right? You know, um, I had, for example, I had never drawn the the Palace, Palace of Fine, Fine Arts. Arts. I loved that place, but I never drew it. Mm-hmm. So for my first piece, yeah, I went and drew the Palace of Fine Arts. Well, and I noticed, and so far as approach, and we just have a minute or two okay. left here. Um, but I noticed that the the Palace of Fine Arts actually goes with the story. Well, that's the point. So here's the other thing: I want to focus on. Uh, people who've been who've helped shape San Francisco, primarily women who've contributed to the shaping of the city and making it what it is, who have been forgotten. And um, and I find a place that they've had a relationship to. They've affected in some way and find a quote from them. So I can give us this sort of meme like quote and then give a brief little bio so that I can help these people stay in in the new history. In June 1915, at a ceremony held at the Pan Pacific Pan Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco, poet and literary figure Ina Coolbrith, 1841-1928, was named California's first poet laureate and in turn the first poet laureate of any U.S. state. Yes. That's just a little shout out to help with that mission. Exactly. And, and the relationship to the Palace of Fine Arts is she was given uh, her award at the palace and she took the opportunity to not just say thank you, but to say, hey, I, did not, I would have never had this opportunity had I never been a poet. Beautiful. We are completely out of time a few minutes ago. Oh. <laughs> so I've got to go before uh, the computer drives us out of here. But Well, thank you so much. Uh, no, thank you so much. This was great. And like I said, um, we could have done six more of these, and maybe I'll convince you to come back. <laughs> Palmadonna.com, knobhillgazette.com, 
thanks for being here, Paul. It's great meeting you and getting to talk to you about all your endeavors and the creative process. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.